Welcome to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin. Um, our usual host, our Deputy Director Matt Borusky, is, uh, is on a family emergency, not anything about someone's health, just something came up where he has to attend to it, and so he cannot join us this week. So I'm pitching in as the host and also panelist, and then we have our usual member of the panel, in addition to Matt and I, Claire Zoutke, the Healthcare for All Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin. Good morning, Claire. Good morning, Robert and Brian, who the listeners can't see or hear, but we do. So I can't resist uh, starting with this, though there's, my goodness, much much news to talk about. And we're not even going to talk about international relations, though I would love to, but we have limited time. And then Ukraine. But that is, uh, we were part of the introduction of the most bold and sweeping healthcare bill introduced in Wisconsin in a long time. And it's exciting because I think that Democrats need to start leading on healthcare again. It's always near the top of the opinion polls and public concerns. And there's been very little proposed that would deal with one of the most driving issues for the whole public, that is cost, which is ever escalating. It is is still the leading cause of bankruptcy which has to do with the exploitive practices of the whole healthcare industry and all the elements of it and uh, their windfall profits. Uh, but in addition to that, um, there's a huge equity question we've seen in COVID-19. And this bill addresses both. And we think it gives Democrats a, a, something to run on that is both critically important, that's what democracy is about, and also will motivate voters to come and vote in this critical election, will create a mandate for real action because we haven't had a government in Wisconsin at the legislative level interested in leading for quite some time now. So, Claire, you are a healthcare policy expert. So, I think I should stop with that and uh, with that teaser and hand it over to you to explain the details of who, who introduced this bill, what it does, uh, and where we go from here. Yes, I am really excited to finally be able to talk about this bill after. Um, so long, uh, like weeks of teasing it here on the podcast. So um, this bill is the uh, Badger Care Public Option Act is what it is um, officially titled. And this bill would do a number of things, uh, but all of them are under sort of this broad theme that Robert described of trying to make healthcare more affordable and to make healthcare coverage of higher quality and more affordable for everyone in the state of Wisconsin, regardless of where they live or what their income is. So the bill, like I said, would uh, do three things. So the first thing and the biggest thing is that the uh, Badger Care Public Option Act creates a Badger Care Public Option. It's right there in the title. Um, so this is um, a, a like commonly discussed at the federal level um, policy option that has um, taken uh, on some popularity at the state level as well. Lots of states around the country are pursuing public options. Um, and it is a plan that would be uh, sponsored by the state, a public health coverage option um, that would be a separate plan under the Badger Care Plus umbrella. Um, and it would be available to purchase on the ACA marketplace by anyone in the state of Wisconsin, regardless of. Um, their income level. So of course, right now, Badger Care has a strict income level. We talk a lot about that. Everybody knows that. Um, But this plan um, would not. Um, We um, anticipate that it would have um, cost sharing, meaning um, premiums and things that you pay that would be uh, lower, at least we we hope and anticipate would be lower than um, a traditional um, private health insurance plan, because of course, we're not dealing with um, like, like wasteful profiteering of private insurances, right? It could be uh, an affordable health coverage option that it would be available across the state. Um, 
we also would make this option or this bill would also make this option available for small business and employers um, of 50 employees or less. That way, our hope is that small employers like Citizen Action included, right, but also many small businesses um, would be able to offer employer-sponsored insurance for the first time at an affordable rate to their employees. And I think that's a really big deal. So Robert, why don't I go back to you for some feedback and some back and forth before I um, briefly mention what the other two parts of this bill are? So I'll, I'll comment on the first parts that Claire has unveiled. This is like when you d- unveil the NCAA brackets, you know, they do it one by one. You don't know where the badgers are until if they're in a bracket that's not been shown until that bracket is shown, which adds to suspense. So on the parts that Claire just uh, talked about, um, The way this would work is, and this was discussed at the national level with the original fight over the Affordable Care Act passage, and it was corporate Democrats and people like Joe Lieberman that prevented there from being a public option originally in the Affordable Care Act. And and it was extremely popular because it doesn't require people take public health insurance instead of private insurance. It creates a choice and people want control of their own health care decisions. And so people can, if they really like United Healthcare or Humana, and they're buying insurance on their own through the Affordable Care Act marketplace, then they can continue to buy it, but they'll have another option. And this option will be is very different because you'll see in your it good it, its cost will differ based on region as the private insurance does. So it, we can't just quote a premium, right, or quote it, but we we can quote what the deductibles and copays are and the percentages, right? And so what it does is. You know, so maybe there'd be a private health insurance option that a lower premium one year. Okay, you could choose it. But then again, maybe it would have higher uh, co-pays, higher deductibles, right? And the other thing it would not have that private insurance has is haggling with the insurance company to pay your claim. Because like in Medicare, in Badger Care, it's a clear number of things that are covered and it's just paid. There's not a whole industry designed to deny claims that are rightful and then make you haggle or give up and keep the money and try to, and and that's sort of a -a whack-a-mole where they say, oh, it's how the doctor billed it, or it's this or that or the other and coded it. And and you're calling both bureaucracies back and forth and back and forth. And I can tell you that, you know, since colon cancer runs in my family, I started colonoscopies much earlier. And every single time Mm -hmm. there is an attempt to, um, uh, to, to, to make me pay the whole thing or a huge part of it, even though it's supposed to be free preventive care under the Affordable Care Act. And I win every time. And then I figure out what happened the previous time. And I'm a healthcare policy person in a lot of ways. I, I know it well. I, um, um, I, I also read the literature. And even this time, I did everything right. And the only thing I couldn't nail down is the anesthesiologist potentially being out of network. They wouldn't tell me who the anesthesiologist was until they already had me prepped and drugged. So there's nothing I could do about it and what bill came. But then, of course, I was able to win that fight. But nonetheless, it's ridiculous. So and then the other part that Claire mentioned is um, so that's a choice and you'll have the choice and you'll have a very different kind of insurance. Uh, and with, that's much more predictable, but you don't have to take it if you don't want, if you love your, your, your current uh, provide, you know, uh, health plan. And there are state employees who love their private health plans. You could keep them if you were buying them on the Affordable Care Act marketplace. Uh, but then the other thing is small business. Less than a third of small employers, not just small business, small nonprofit employers like Citizen Action as well, even provide insurance. And those that do, it's a, it's a Herculean lift because small group insurance that covers them is, is more expensive and more difficult even to land. And so it, it, it bankrupts small businesses or since two thirds don't provide it, they lose their best employees. It's a competitive disadvantage. And often the owners with small businesses go uninsured in trying to build the business. And then something happens if someone gets cancer. It's, it's horrible. And so we haven't done anything about this serious. There have been bills and nibble around the edges, but they haven't been serious, despite all the political rhetoric. This allows every small business, 50 employees or less, or small employer, to purchase Badger Care, okay, and uh, as a plan, like it's a health plan. And it it had all the benefits I said before, 
No one has to. The small employer, if they're getting a good plan they like somewhere else or chooses not to provide insurance, doesn't have to. But almost all the small business, like a huge majority in all of the health research every year, only don't provide it because they can't afford it, not because they don't want to. They know how important it is to provide and they know they'll lose their best employees uh, because they don't or disadvantaging them. They get sick. They don't leave. They get sick, though, and they're taking a big risk to work where they love. So, Claire, I know we're getting to the one-minute mark, but you could have it say a little bit more, then we'll go go to the next segment. Say about this is, and I apologize, my dog in the background decided that this is a good moment to start barking. Um, the last thing I want to say about this uh, uh, public option is that, remember, this is not a controversial policy standpoint at the national level. If you think back to the 2020 election and all of the uh, Democratic primary candidates on the debate stage talking about their health care platforms, it was the moderate, the centrist candidates who were supporting public options. People like Pete Buttigieg, who a lot of people, including some Citizen Action supporters su- uh, or members supported, so this is not a dig on him, right? But he took like a very measured approach and he was a Medicare for all who want it um, and our Medicare for America, right? Those are public options that people were talking about. It w- And then you had people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren who are supporting Medicare for all. So this, this should, this is a mainstream idea at the national level. And we don't want to allow Democrats in Wisconsin to fall behind where um, the party is, where the left is on the national level. So that's why we felt like it was really important to get a public option introduced this legislative session so that we can hold in this electoral cycle here, we can hold our state legislators accountable to a, a vision on health care reform um, that is like the, the boldest thing we can do at the state level. Okay, with that, Claire, we have to take a quick break. You're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin, pitching in for our usual host, Matt Brusky. Uh, we were talking about a great new bill in the last segment uh, that was introduced on health care, the most sweeping health care reform bill to be introduced in Wisconsin in, in years, and also, uh, frankly, the best public option bill introduced uh, in any state. And so we went through the first two elements of it, and we, Claire gave us a deep dive. The Everyone who buys insurance on their own under the Affordable Care Act in the marketplace can also have the option of Badger care, buying buying into Badger care instead of private insurance, but can keep the private insurance if they prefer it, and then offering it to small businesses. It's a huge issue that small businesses don't can't afford health insurance. It's damaging to our economy and to workers and economic growth. Uh, Claire had saved for this segment the other the, the remaining elements of the Badger Care Public Option Act introduced this week by. Christina Shelton in the in the state assembly and Chris Larson in the state senate. So Claire, on to the the rest of the tour. Yes. Okay. So there are two remaining parts of this bill, and um, the second piece of the bill is the creation of what is called a basic health plan. So the basic health plan is probably something that you haven't heard of if you are a listener to this podcast. So I will explain what it is. Um, it is a a part of the Affordable Care Act. So the Affordable Care Act did um, three things um, aside from all of the uh, you know, uh, preventative care should be free pre-existing conditions. So aside from all of that stuff, it did three things. One was create Medicaid expansion. So in Wisconsin, that's Badger Care expansion. Of course, we haven't done that. Um, the second thing is create the um, the the marketplace for health coverage. So this is the healthcare.gov where you go online, you provide your coverage. Um, and then it had the, the subsidies for people who buy coverage on the marketplace um, that phase out after 400% of uh, the federal poverty line. So as you get wealthier, you get lower subsidies um, from the federal government to help support your health per- healthcare coverage purchase. Um, and then the third thing it did was create a basic health plan. Now, New York and Minnesota have adopted these health plans. um, And so we have a great model right next door in Minnesota of how to do this well. Um, And it is designed to um, provide a a high quality basic, meaning it covers all the fundamental, uh, most important parts of a health coverage plan. 
a basic health coverage plan for people who are between the top of the Medicaid expansion, Badger Care expansion eligibility um, level and 200% of the federal poverty line, which is where um, the ACA subsidies that I described really kick in. So the ACA was designed to create kind of this continuum of support for people between um, the Medicaid Badger Care eligibility level and 400% FPL, right? Okay. So uh, Wisconsin obviously hasn't done Badger Care expansion, but we still could do a basic health plan, which would support people between specifically 133% of the federal poverty line and 200%, right? Which is again, that ACA subsidies are where they're the strongest. So, um, so this would be a, um, a plan offered again by the state um, and specifically for people in that income bracket that I listed, um, that would be a second publicly available and administered um, high quality health coverage option for those folks. Um, and our hope is that this plan would be even more affordable than the basic, uh, or excuse me, than the Badger Care public option plan, right? Because it would be more similar to Badger Care in the fact that it would be like a publicly administered plan designed for um, lower income um, working uh, Wisconsinites. So that's the basic health plan that would um, that the bill would create. And then the third thing that the bill would do would be to create a state-based healthcare exchange. Um, so like I said, the ACA created healthcare marketplaces on the internet. You go, you search plans that are available to you. You pick the one that's your best fit if you don't have employer-sponsored coverage. Um, right now, Wisconsin is one of the uh, few remaining states that uses the federal government's um, website for that, healthcare.gov. Um, a best practice in health policy is to have a state-based exchange um, so that we would have a Wisconsin-specific one and not have have to go through the federal government. This is just a wonky good practice thing. It allows the state more um, control and flexibility over how the websites run, how it's marketed, and how we help people enroll. Robert, what, what do you think about those last two things? Yeah, and let me just say quick, this is like of order, a remark about the exchange. It's not, oh, I mean, Claire said it, so the state has more control, but let me tell you why that matters. President Trump refused to create more ability to buy insurance if you didn't have it during the COVID pandemic. States that had their own exchanges could make their own rules. So states like California, New York, and Illinois did provide more coverage to people who, law, who, who needed insurance during a pandemic or coverage, health coverage. And uh, a lot of people who live, lived in, you know, under Trump rule, you know, the federal exchange, the marketplace did not. So that, that, that wonkish difference has implications. And in fact, I was part of the process under Governor Doyle that developed a fantastic thousand page blueprint plan for a Wisconsin exchange that then Scott Walker canceled. Just so you know the history, we have a plan on the shelf, ready to go. So let me go back though to the basic health plan. Uh, here's the thing. Badgercare, when Walker made his political compromise and decided for himself to run for president and decide to turn down Medicaid expansion, Badgercare expansion, and essentially pay more for covering fewer people, uh, he actually moved the Badgercare eligibility level down to 100% of federal poverty. And that's a very low number. No one serious thinks that that's really the poverty level. It was set very um, arbitrarily in 1963 based on a bunch of factors that are even relevant anymore to the modern economy. So people are really poor by any common parlance, well up to 200 or 250% of poverty. But under Tommy Thompson, who developed Agicare and Jim Doyle, they had more exceptions, they weren't universal. It was generally 200% of federal poverty for Badger Care. Walker cut it in half. And he also relied on the Affordable Care Act to justify himself, even though he was against that too and wanted to repeal it, was running on that as for president. And we're still stuck there. And so the basic health plan was an option in the Affordable Care Act that allows you to take public health insurance up to where it should be, 200% of federal poverty. And most health policy experts think that even for, for that, everyone up to that level at least, private insurance with the claim denials and all the complexity of it and, 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 and the, the cost sharing is not appropriate for people who are that close to the economic margins and having trouble paying their rent, paying for their food. Uh, all the basics of life. And so that this is great. This is going to 
bring us up. And Minnesota's been doing this for years, and it's great. They have much better uh, coverage numbers than we do and much better outcomes than we do, in part because they do it. And so they're, and they're a very similar state to us. So this is not just about following New York. We often get that argument in Wisconsin. Minnesota is a comparable, uh, to use the language. And the other thing I want to point out, in addition to what Claire laid out, is, is that, uh, and it, she mentioned this, is that uh, this, for the first time, provides a place for immigrants who are legally here to get insurance. A lot of them don't have it in the current system. And they are hardworking members of our community who are paying taxes. They are. There are a lot of taxes that, are, uh, that, that people pay if they live in our country and they're being productive and working. And uh, they were a lot of them were essential workers. And of course, they should be able to buy health insurance like anyone else in this country. And for most of our history, we didn't have these draconian requirements to become a citizen and get rights. It was fairly easy during the immigration waves of the, of the 19th century to gain full status and to get all the benefits of living here. But we, we've partly because of structural racism, more than partly uh, treated the modern immigration waves differently than we did, you know, the white immigrants from Eastern Europe and Southern Europe uh, in the 19th century. So, Claire, is there anything else you think we missed here? I do want to say this is a huge electoral issue, and this helps Democrats will run on it, and we plan to encourage incumbents and challengers to use this and point out the Republicans have nothing on this other than going backwards and being even worse than the status quo. People are mad about physician drug prices. They're mad about health insurance practices and costs, and they're mad about increasingly mad about how their hospitals act the same way, which they do. They're, in fact, a bigger culprit than health insurance companies. They just have a little better public relations than the insurance industry. So, Claire, is there anything you want to add? And I, and I want to shout out to Representative Shelton and Senator Larson. And this is why we need to elect representatives like this, because they partner with groups like Citizen Action that do this kind of policy. And if we can get majorities back, then uh, we can actually start doing laws like this. But the public needs to know that they're going to vote progressive Democrats in. Claire? Yeah. Um, two things, last things to say. Um, so one of them is, so yes, um, major, major shout outs um, and all the props go to um, Representative Christina Shelton and her staffer Paige for all of their work on this bill. They really, really led this effort. Um, Representative Supreme Moore Omakunde is the um, first co-sponsor or the like secondary author of the bill on the Assembly side and on the Senate side. Senators Chris Larson and Latanya Johnson um, are are the the Senate leaders. So major um, props and thanks to them for being leaders on this issue. Um, and the last thing I want to say is, you know, you may be a listener um, to our podcast who's thinking, look, Republicans in the legislature are never going to let this bill pass. So, um, you know, why are we so excited about it? And and to you, I would say, look, it's true that there are major challenges passing something like this in the legislature right now. But I want to remind folks that it is important that we hold the legislature and not just Republicans, but also Democrats accountable to bold reform visions, like I said at the end of the last segment. Um, because if we don't do that, we, there is no way we will ever move forward. So we need to be aspirational. We need to be making sure that our legislators are accountable to the needs of the community and builds uh, bills like this um, are the way that we um, ensure that we can do that. Um, and it's incredibly important that we're talking to our legislators. Um, if you live in a Democratic district, call them, ask them to co-sponsor this bill, the Badger Care Public Option Act, because we want to hold them accountable to bold visions, especially as they come home and campaign on the public dollar for the next six months. Here's a way to think of this, because it's, it's, it's distressing. We'll talk about in the next segment to think about the present leadership of the legislature and what they're up to and what they're not doing. But working with these state reps and senators and this kind of policy, it's like we're working in the future. It should give us hope. We're doing the policy that, that we need to be doing in the future. Once we win elections, we need to work very hard to do that. As we always say, it's like we'll give ourselves agency here and our movement's agency. Uh, but I would just say that it's important Democrats be unified because I went through the last time in the in, for only time in the 21st century when the Democrats had full control of both houses and the governorship and very little is getting done because a lot of things like automatic voter registration, redistricting reform, whole lot of other things 
didn't have a consensus among Democrats because we hadn't done the work when they were in the minority. And so this will assure you cannot assume electing Democrats therefore leads to the policy. Look at what Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema just showed. So we just need to understand that this is part of the process of winning later once we win. And actually, and actually therefore, if we had done that, uh, back in, we wouldn't have, we would have be a much better position on elections and all and everything that's going on with Scott Walker. If we, if we, if the Democrats were even unified, do the reform that they now support back when they had full control. So with that, we'll take a quick break and then we will get to the circus that is the state assembly election investigation. If you're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen National Wisconsin. Pinch hitting, though there'll be no pinch hitting in the actual major leagues. Pinch hitting for the, uh, not for a while anyway, for our usual host, Matt Brusky. And so what we, did, we just talked about something good that progressive Democrats, it's a very broad party, the Democrat Party, so there's a progressive wing. That's the wing we're working with, but we know we have to have a partnership with the moderate wing. And you've seen that at the federal level with Biden and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Pramila Jayapal. That's what we, we're trying to seek here. But the progressives play a role, and one of them is to, put, is to is develop really good, exciting policies that mobilize people to vote and tell us what we can do when we win. Uh, but we have to look at the present now. That's the, the, the future and the what we're going to do in the election. This is the now. And the now, Claire is it's been described as a circus, a clown show, a clown, a, you know, a train of clown cars. It is the bizarre. It is seems to be trumping, uh, pun intended, the Arizona fraud investigation, the, the fraud investigation led by, I would say, disgraced and humiliated state Supreme Court, former state Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman at the behest of Robin Voss and the assembly. And he it got even wilder in a hearing today and uh, this week and with an interim report. He's calling for the legislature to decertify the 2022 elections, even though he admits there's no legal way to do that. This is a former Supreme Court justice, allegedly. Why do you propose things that are legal by a legislature based on completely absurd fraud accusations? And what what we could go through the, some of the details, Claire, and I'm sure you'll mention them. But a lot of the listeners have seen them. There's been much media on this, so I don't want to be overly repetitive. But it is clown car circus is all, you know, good ways to describe this. But my concern, Claire, and I know you want to get into the details a little bit because you're a good details person. But I would just say more broadly, our goal is to clarify that there's very little election fraud and that our goal should be to, to make it easier to vote, that the only barriers to voting should be ones that are absolutely necessary in a democracy where we ought to treasure uh, participation and majority rule. And we should want 90, 95% voting. We have a, par- a Republican party that decided to rule by minority rule. Redistricting is the same thing, but the, the tactic here with Gableman is such, he just wants to muddy the waters so Republicans will think there's a problem. In other words, he's just trying to create a whole bunch of smoke. And us naming how crazy it is doesn't actually clear the smoke for the Republican base, which they hope will elect them and allow them to go do these things in next session if they can unseat Governor Doyle and, and probably replace him with the front runner currently, Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish, who, to my mind, is our own Sarah Palin, Wisconsin's version. Uh, but uh, Claire... Maybe you want to talk. What, what do you have to say about this? You can talk about more of the crazy details or just reflect on it. Well, whatever, whatever strikes you. Uh, well, I think there's two things that happened this past week that are um, or maybe not even this past week in the past 24, 48 hours um, that have come together uh, in this story, the latest saga of the story, right, which is sort of the confluence of of what's happening here in Wisconsin um, with what's happening at the national level. So um, in Wisconsin, of course, we have um, Gableman, who, as you said, um, continues to push what what Matt, if if he were here, would call the big lie, right, that anything was wrong with um, in in Wisconsin um, with the election when it has just been proven over and over again to, to just be patently false. Um, as well as um, trying to do anything about it being illegal and ineffectual, um, right? And, and that's 
Um, I, I'm glad, um, that this is an opinion that, um, in, in recent weeks, Republicans have even um, started to come out more and more in the legislature and say, can we please stop talking about this? It's just, it's just a waste of our time and energy. So, for example, um, the Assembly Majority Leader, Jim Steinecke, who is a state representative out of Kaukana, um, tweeted um, about Gableman this week. He said it is still not legal to um, overturn the Wisconsin election results under Wisconsin law, and it would have no practical impact because there's no constitutional way to remove a sitting president. This is a fool's errand. So even Republicans are saying, oh, my gosh, can we please stop talking about this? It is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, one, one quick reflection before you continue, Claire. Republicans who aren't running for re-election do this. That's which true. Is, which is very telling. Kathy Bernier does it, speaks truth to state senator from the Eau Claire and Chippewa Falls area, then announced that she won't run, and she's attacked Gable and goes and attacks her in her district. He's allegedly a nonpartisan investigator. And now Steinecke, who's not running for re-election, says it. So it tells you about the gap, Claire, between what they know to be true and what they're willing to say when their political lives are on the line. But anyway, but you make a good point. They're both very good sources because they don't have a political interest anymore. And in Bernier's case, I think she's not sure about Seneca. She's not running for election probably because she did it, but, yeah. Yeah, which tells you how scary this is. But, but please continue. I just thought the point about Republicans, it's important to understand which ones are willing to be. Like all the former Congress people in the Republican Party are honest on cable news now, but not the current ones, except for two on the January 6th committee. But go ahead, Claire. Yeah, no, I agree with you. That is a really important context and uh, I, I think is a very clear uh, encapsulation of the shift of the Republican Party from libertarian to authoritarian, right? Um, it's really uh, um, alarming. So that, that was an important clarification um, or qualification. So I appreciate you chiming in. Um, since I read a, a, a quote um, from the news of a Republican, I thought I would also read a line from the statement of the Wisconsin Election Commission um, that pushed back on this sort of Gableman narrative. Um, and they said that, quote, transparency is the backbone of the Wisconsin Election Commission in that all our decisions are made fully in public and require bipartisan agreement. Special Counsel Gableman's report is based upon mischaracterizations of Wisconsin election statuses and administration, and therefore the utility of his report is minimal. Basically, what they were trying to say while being polite is this report is trash because it's based on trash findings. Uh, so um, I, I think it's important that we just keep pushing back on it and saying, like, this report means nothing because it's based on nothing. And uh, that, I think, Robert, is a good segue now into what's happening at the federal level, um, which is that the January... Oh, Please go ahead. Let me add one thing. Yeah, I, I, we want to hear the connection of January 6th, but let me give you guys breaking Gableman news, which uh, overnight, which I just want to make sure that is relevant to this. I'll let's touch on it. A judge just ruled that Robin Voss and Michael Gableman violated public records laws by withdrawing their documents and has fined them, and it's going to require them to pay the legal fees of the uh, progressive group that sued them. And then Gableman withdrew election investigation subpoena from both of Stella Frontera, our allies, the great immigrant right group. Uh, that's 24 minutes ago, that headline. So they, it continues. And Robin Voss has disavowed the recommendations, this is new, from uh, Gableman while still keeping him employed and doing his work. But Claire, why don't you go understanding the, the clown card continues even when we look away for a minute. But uh, the, the other clown call was the attempted uh, you know, takeover for the governor of our country. And the January 6th commission is making more progress getting to the heart of the conspiracy. So, Claire, please do share. Yeah. And, uh, I'll, you know, I'll kind of tease something up here and toss it back to you because I'm sure you'll have a lot to say. Um, but, um, of course, also this week, the January 6th. Uh, a congressional investigative committee released some initial um, findings um, that basically said that um, they think there is grounds for criminal charges against former President Trump. 
And um, we know that there are a, that there's a strong connection between the congressional investigation and what happened here in Wisconsin. Um, we've talked about it on this podcast before, um, namely that former Wisconsin legislator um, who is now a member of Commer- uh, Congress, uh, Scott Fitzgerald, um, helped um, get the room for the Wisconsin fake electors to be to use to um, sign documents of trying to overturn the election. And um, that Trump directed, or at least his campaign directed that effort. Um, and so there, there are some findings in Congress this week again that said, like, we think Trump is it could face criminal charges. Uh, and, and then that was that was big news. So, so Robert, why don't you why don't you talk a little bit about what happened there and how it ties to Wisconsin? I would just say, look, uh, it's interesting in the January 6th Commission, Claire of the two Republicans who are showing bravery, one of them, Congressman Kinzinger, is following the Wisconsin pattern of not running for re-election. The one that is super brave and arguably has been the most eloquent in all of this is an arch-right Republican state uh, 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 Congresswoman, Lynn Cheney, you know, uh, Dick Cheney's daughter. And she's gonna run for re-election in Wyoming and Trump and the MAGA are trying to take her out. That is fascinating. But there's a Wisconsin connection. One of the, 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 the seven states where they tried to invalidate the election, where we had the fake electors, we know a sitting congressman uh, was enabling that. And um, we now know from January 6th, there'll be hearings, we think, in April from the January 6th commission. So we'll see this all, that they are zeroing it in on a conspiracy with uh, a couple of Trump's key lawyers and advisors and Trump to overturn the election, which has been... I mean, there's been so much evidence that's likely the case for a long time that's kind of obvious to this audience, but they're getting closer to smoking gun evidence here, okay? Now, the problem is, unlike in the early 70s in Watergate, we're a Republican Party that, and, and a base that seems unable even to appreciate smoking gun evidence. So that it, so this is good. what's happening with January 6th is critical, and I think it's going to be critical in the election for people to know that Republicans in this state are standing behind the insurrection, because as unpopular uh, with all independent voters, all Democratic voters and, and, and a fair number of Republican voters, though not all of them. So we need to bear that in mind. But one little quip before we go to break and come back is, you know, we were subpoenaed by the Walker attorney general. So maybe I should be uh, I should be uh, jealous that both Del Frontera is doing better than us and has risen to the level of being subpoenaed by the crazy uh, former Supreme Court Justice Gableman, uh, though it's been withdrawn now. Because, uh, But who knows, Claire, maybe the subpoena's in the mail. Brian, check the mail. We'll see. Anyway, with that, uh, we have to take a quick break, and you're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Cis National Wisconsin, pitch hitting for Matt Brusky, our usual host, and joined by our usual uh, panelist, Claire Zowski from Citizen Action. So we've already had a meaty episode of Battleground Wisconsin, but we got more to talk about. Those of you who follow Wisconsin politics closely, which is most of this audience, uh, there's a ritual in Wisconsin among political observers and followers and elected leaders, and that is the release of the Marquette poll. It's kind of like, I don't know, the, 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 the monthly Mardi Gras during election years. And it's a little <laughs> bit silly. You know, Charles Franklin, the uh, pollster who was a UW-Madison political scientist, seems like a good guy and a good, solid political scientist. And they seem to have good, solid polling methodology. But of course, they only ask limited questions, and uh, it, and, it, and it's often misinterpreted. Um, and because polling is subject to error, you know, we had the same errors we've had in 2016, and 2018, in 2020, another poll undermeasuring Trump support. I think it was by eight points in 2020. So it's not infallible, and it doesn't even ask, by definition, the whole range of questions. But then the media jumps forward. So everyone's excited, though, because we have a head-to-head in the, in the very uh, exciting U.S. Senate primary for the Democratic nomination to face Ron Johnson. We have head-to-head numbers now from Marquette, not just released by – we've had polls released by campaigns. Those are less reliable, and the campaign will release what is helpful to them. And then we have it for the governor's primary and uh, on the Republican side, and we have some issue questions so, Claire, tell us what we learned about the U.S. Senate race and who is going to be 
our nominee or who is in the front position uh, to be the nominee in this critical race to unseat Ron Johnson and, ta- and also get a, get a working Democratic majority in the U.S. Senate. Sure. So um, and and in addition to, you know, taking polling with a grain of salt for all the reasons that Robert described, uh, let's also remember that there's a number of months left until the election. Right. It is March. So we have until um, almost the same day um, in November uh, for things to change. So uh, right now on the Democratic primary side, um, the Marquette Law Poll found that um, Mandela Barnes had the highest level of support with uh, 23%, followed by Alex Lazary at 13, Tom Nelson at five, Sarah Godlewski um, at three. So that is kind of where things stand right now. However, it noted that there was a um, jump in Alex Lazary's um, rating so that he he improved in support um, since the last time the poll was conducted. Um, so that's why I say, look, there is a lot of campaign left, so we should not expect these numbers to be stagnant. Um, and I, I would guess that that jump has something to do with um, name recognition. And Alex Lazary knew very early on, I would imagine, I'm not part of his campaign, not part of anybody's campaign, that his greatest deficit was going to be name recognition as somebody who hasn't held elected office before. Um, so, so they've expended, uh, I believe, a lot of resources in uh, increasing his name recognition. Um, name recognition is a big deal, and you see that also on the Republican primary side, right? So you have um, Rebecca Clayfish, Nicholson, and Tim Ramthin, I think was not announced. Um, I don't remember if he might have not been allow- announced long enough to be included in this poll. Um, so let me uh, let me just double check here. Oh, he was. Okay. So um, Rebecca Clayfish had a about um, 50% of people said that they um, haven't heard or didn't know of her, um, but 80 and 86% respectively said that they didn't know or hadn't heard of Kevin Nicholson or Tim Ranthen. So um, you can see that name recognition is like one of the biggest things, like hurdles that any candidate on either side of the aisle has to overcome. Um, Rebecca Clayfish had, uh, was of course, because of that largely leading the Republican primary. Look, it's super early. Nearly half of primary voters don't have a position in the U.S. Senate race. So you take that with a grain of salt. Uh, And we're so early that other candidates could spend the money they need. It's very regrettable that how much money you have to spend affects your election prospects. It's why we need to clean up the election system. I'm not saying dirty money is involved here from from Alex Lazary. Um, I'm saying that he, he is expended the most money and he's moved up his name recognition and therefore moved up in the polls, right? I mean, I have respect for Alex, so I'm not accusing him of anything. I'm just pointing out the the, the, the distorted nature of our political system. And Sarah Godlewski has put a lot of money in that she hasn't spent as much yet. So we'll see if she moves up and how much she will spend and what will happen. So this is pretty early. Mandela Barnes has raised a lot of money. He's not independently wealthy. And uh, does have the most name recognition and remains in the top spot, though that lead has narrowed and half of voters don't even have a position yet, right, of likely primary voters. Um, So that is where that is. Uh, You talked about the uh, strange, also clown car, uh, governor's primary on the Republican side. And we will see if Trump weighs in and, and, and moves Mr. Ramson up and whether the MAGA base considers their own uh, Rebecca version of Rebecca Palin, uh, you know, Rebecca, I mean, uh, Sarah Palin, Rebecca Clayfish, not adequately MAGA. I mean, Lord knows it's possible. And weird in the Ohio Senate, Dem- Senate primary, there's weird stuff going on that way as to who is considered MAGA and who isn't. So what about issues in the Marquette poll? And I know we want to we spend just a couple of minutes more in Marquette, and then we, we have a couple other issues to do quick hits on. Yeah, what I think is interesting about um, the way this poll was conducted is that instead of asking folks, uh, like, you know, what are your top issues and sort of providing a number of options and allowing people to choose, um, they instead are tracking um, how some people's 
opinions change and what their opinions are in the moment on a number of issues. And I'll be clear, when I say interesting, I don't mean that in like, this is super interesting and I really like it. I mean, interesting in like, I wonder why they're doing this, huh? Kind of interesting. Um, and so they ask about a number of things that I, I think miss out on a lot of the issues, especially at the federal level that like voters care about. So for example, there's no questions about healthcare or climate, which as you know, are two of our top issues at Citizen Action. Um, and, and kind of ask on about some myopic questions that I, I think are not, um, are not indicative of like where the entirety of voters are. Um, so they ask about some interesting things like marijuana um, legalization. They ask a series of questions about education. Um, I think the the one that tries maybe to get at this issue about critical race theory that's like a non-issue or should be a non-issue, but that um, you know folks on the far right have made an issue. Um, they, they, I think they're trying to get at that because they ask a question about who should play the biggest role in school curriculum by party. Um, and, or, or I, sorry, they break it down by party. The results is what I'm trying to say. Um, which I, I think is like, an, I'll say again, an interesting choice. Um, maybe it's more relevant to the state level races and the federal ones. Um, but they ask about that. They ask about, um, you know, school uh, funding and um, school options and, you know, whether, whether we think, the, you know, schools are too hard or not hard enough. I, I, yeah, I'm just surprised about the issue questions that they do ask and what they don't. Robert? Yeah, yeah and I just want to move. Uh, I'll make a comment then. We have two quick hit, quick hit topics, but I would just say that uh, here's the issue, right? The media, which is often sloppy, even good media, is reporting inflation is the top issue for voters. Do we really know that? Healthcare is often at the top of the list. Do we really know it's more important than healthcare costs? We don't. Or, or the climate threat, number of other critical issues. So it le- le- even though it's accurate as far as it goes, the questions uh, Professor Franklin asked, if he got accurate answers to if his sample is right, but it distorts in that he, what he chose right, to, to, to poll and what he chose not to. But let me do another kind of floppy media problem, and that is uh, COVID-19. We're again reopening, and it's like it's the all-clear siren has come, right? Everything is safe, no tornado, right? When, in fact, if you look at the CDC map on the CDC website, uh, it looks very red because a majority, well over majority of, of counties in the U.S. are still in high transmission rates and a huge number. The next biggest number is substantial, which is where we are in Milwaukee. It is not all clear, but yet we are masks off, masks off in schools. So Claire, walk me back before we do one final quick topic. And that is, am I the one who isn't adjusting or am I worried that we've, we've had this play already? and that we're declaring it over and then it's not because we've done nothing with the variants around the world and vaccinating the world and the other things we need to do for it to be done in my opinion yeah i you know i think when spikes go down like the omicron spike has gone down people tend to want to let their guard down and um you know we we can start doing more a little bit more things um obviously when we're in the valley of a wave than when we're at the the mountaintop of a wave but you know i i again will stand by everything i've said which i've always said which is that masks are one of the best ways to spread or to stop the spread of covid to prevent you from getting it and to prevent somebody else from spreading it so um i i'm not walking you back on feeling like we should not be rolling back mask uh, masking in public so and by the way people take it you know when you say that we can loosen up the mask some places all the people in the high transmission places pull the masks off and the wrong people, like the unvaccinated people, okay? That's what happened last time the CDC did this and others and politicians in the middle of last year. So spring of last year. So I would just say this, they have nice color coding at CDC. We were in condition red. Uh, We're in condition red in the majority of the country now still, it's just a lower condition red, but we're in condition orange, say in Milwaukee County, where we're broadcasting, Wisconsin's a mix between red and orange. Condition orange doesn't mean 
everything safe, repeatedly return to life as usual, it means you can do a little more, as Claire said, but keep to be cautious and be ready for it to go back to condition red if you hear the sirens again, right? That's not being conveyed by politicians. It's not being conveyed by the media effectively at all. Even very good national media like NPR kills me. It's like, you can do better than that. You're much better reporters than that. By, uh, President Biden in the State of the Union did try. He said, we don't know when there's going to be another variant. So that, he was better than most media in at least saying that emphatically. Well, but he also wanted to show progress for political reasons, which is understandable. That's his incentive. So one final thing, and we have very little time, and that is I am thrilled, even if the far right is not, uh, that we have nominated the first ever African-American uh, Supreme Court justice, and if we can hold all the Democrats, then she will be our Supreme Court justice. And uh, it is Justice Brown Jackson, who is incredibly qualified, though we'll hear she is not. I mean, it's unbelievable how qualified she is. I've not studied her whole record, but she is considered a progressive, quite frankly. The media also keeps saying it's not going to change anything. It's replacing a liberal with a liberal. Do you know what? Uh, Stephen Breyer was not a liberal. He was a moderate. There's a difference. He had a lot of rulings on antitrust and monopolies, a whole lot of labor law that were not what progressives would rule. I've not studied Brown Jackson's entire record, but she's generally considered a progressive justice, not just a moderate justice. And she's an incredibly qualified African-American woman who will be the first in American history. And if you look, Claire, you know, at, at the wall of previous Supreme Court justices, boy, it looks male and white. Boy, we should be embarrassed. What are your quick thoughts? My only thought, in addition to everything you said, is that this she's also the first Supreme Court justice or would be the first Supreme Court justice with a background as a public defender. And that is so, so huge in the justice reform field. Right. And this, to have somebody on that bench who has experience working with defending and sympathizing with um, uh, with defendants it, I, I, is groundbreaking. So more on that, we'll see if the Republicans make the nomination a clown show or whether they want to pretend to be statesmen and stateswomen this time. We shall see. And we'll learn about that and every other crazy development in Wisconsin and some with some national as well uh, on your next and your and your rest of the year. Battleground Wisconsin as we enter again, as it is often in Wisconsin the most important election year of our lives. But remember, every election year in Wisconsin is the most important of our lives. So thank you, everyone, and be safe.